Hi, and welcome to The Rock. The Apostle Paul left his young protege, Titus, on the island of Crete to finish the work of establishing biblically qualified pastors in every town. He writes Titus with instructions on how to do this and how to build a healthy church that can impact the world for the gospel. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the book of Titus entitled, Finish the Work. This morning again, I welcome you back to your seats. Ready to dig into our brand new book of study, the book of Titus. Looking forward to those wonderful three chapters, great insights await us. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we always acknowledge this is the word of God sent from heaven. God breathed. It does not have its origin in any man. But holy men of old, carried along by the Holy Spirit, wrote as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so we receive the word of God for what it is, not the word of man, but the word of the living God. So speak to our hearts. You have ordained our footsteps to this place for this moment. It's no accident that we are all gathered together around these nine verses in Titus chapter one. So say what it is you want to say to our hearts and give us the grace to receive it, understand it, and apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. It was wise King Solomon who said, finishing something is better than starting something. And what he meant by that, of course, is that What good is starting anything that doesn't end up getting finished or completed, you know? Starting a project or a task is something that is common enough. We all do it. It's relatively easy to get underway. We have the initial inspiration, right, and motivation and funds. But as time goes by and challenges uh, present themselves and, and difficulties appear and reappear, that inspiration can fade, the motivation can wane, and the funds can just sprout wings and fly away. And then the saying is true, a good work Left unfinished is not a good work at all. And I was Googling around and I found some embarrassing world monuments <laughs> that speak to this very thing of an unfinished work. Here in South Africa, Cape Town, a picture here by the harbor. <laughs> Uh, Back in the 70s, they really needed these uh, flyovers, as they're called. And uh, they started the work, and they ran out of funds, and they didn't even have the funds to take it away. So they came up with a brilliant idea. Let's make it into a monument. (laughs) And so that stands to this day there in South uh, Africa, an un. Finished work like this could be, well, kind of embarrassing or not very effective for what it was designed and started to do, right? And under some circumstances, even this one, a little bit dangerous to leave a job undone, right? You imagine some poor guy who maybe had too much to drink and (laughs) took a wrong (laughs) turn. (laughs) Yeah, those kinds of things happen. When you don't finish... The work God has called you to do in your life or through your life. And so thank you for that picture. It was a good work, spiritually speaking, that had begun there in first century Crete uh, that got started by the Apostle Paul and his mentee or protege, Titus. And we believe Timothy was along uh, there for a short period of that time. And so there they were on the island of Creek doing, as I alluded to earlier, some pretty um, nasty 
confrontations of churches that had lost their way. Uh, they were very weak and floundering in their faith, and, and it was mainly because of the shoddy leadership. Let me just show you and get situated here with a map. I love maps and just kind of remind you about the island of Crete. There it is, 165 miles long, so like from here to Monterey long. And, and at its widest, about 50 miles. But the average uh, uh, width of the island is uh, about 25 miles. So there it is, and there Paul uh, arrived with his protege, Titus, who had become his son in the faith somewhere along the way. We don't know where. Uh, but we know that under Paul's preaching, Titus became a Christian and became one of his helpers and disciples. And they ended up there. Now, how in the world did the gospel get to Crete in the first place? Because in the book of Acts, there's no mention of a missionary journey to Crete, except one little stopover on Paul's way to prison. The vessel taking him to Rome harbored for a couple days in the port there on Crete. But they didn't stay very long. But where the gospel came 30 years earlier was on the day of Pentecost when there were Jews from, quote, Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. Jews from every nation under heaven were attending the festivities in Israel on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given and 3,000 people got saved, and 2,000 people got filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were from all of these places like Crete, and they ended up going back to their homelands and starting churches. Well, for 30 years, churches had been growing in this little isolated island nation without the Apostle Paul, without visitations from Apollos, and Luke and Aristarchus, nobody was going there, right? I mean, they can't go everywhere. And so what happened was is that the quality of the ministry on that island, there were a lot of so-called Christians and a lot of so-called pastors, uh, but <laughs> they were teaching false doctrine. It wasn't the gospel at all. So uh, Paul arrives with Timothy uh, and Titus, so they say, after Paul's Roman imprisonment. So he was in prison for two years, and what scholars call Acts 29, because we have to kind of piece it together from the epistles. There's nothing in Acts up to 28, which is the ending of Acts. So Acts 29 is uh, some of the things that may have went on. And so what it's believed is that for the context of Titus, that Paul gets released and he takes Timothy and Titus to Crete and they make a couple rounds and they find that the churches are deplorable and the leaders are corrupt and deceptive and money hungry and you're going to read about it in, in the letter, right? And he's going to say, we got to get rid of these bad guys and we have to raise up new pastors, new leaders, and here's how to do it. Here are the qualifications for them. Here's what the true gospel is. And here's what the purpose of the church is, is to be healthy and equipped by sound doctrine so that we can make an impact on the world so that we can continue the Lord's work of seeking and saving the lost. That, in a nutshell, is the essence of what's going to go on in three chapters of the book of Titus. And so here's, what, here's the diving off point now. Is so Paul and Titus are there. You can picture somebody my age because he was my age at the time. And you can picture someone Pastor Adam's age because uh, Titus was Pastor Adam's age at the time. And the same relationship because I led Pastor Adam to the Lord some 15 years ago. Same sort of picture in your mind. Now imagine this, and this is the diving off point. We're in a village in India, let's say, me and Pastor Adam. 
And then I say, oh, the Lord is stirring up my heart to a work. I need to go and follow him. And I'm going to leave you here to finish the work that we started. (laughs) And then I just take off, right? Well, can you imagine how intimidated a young man would be to do the work of confronting churches with false teachers and yikes. And so I'm sure there was a small team assembled, but Titus was put in charge. And now... Paul has left Crete and he's writing to him to say, young man, there's a lot on the line. You finished the work that we started there. And now we're in chapter one. Let's take a look at it. This is just a greeting up to verse four. All right, this is just the salutation. Paul a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who doesn't lie, promised before the beginning of time, and at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior... To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And I just added verse 5 to show you the connection of where he's going in the body of the letter. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, how is that for a greeting? That is just like a, dear Titus, how are you? I am fine. That's what it's supposed to be, right? (laughs) But leave it to a preacher like Paul to fit in a mini sermon in between how are you and I am fine. And it's no easy sermon either. I could just spend the whole time trying to explain his, how are you? I am fine. And there's a, there's a couple reasons for this theological treatise, almost, uh, wedged into this salutation. Now, if you're taking notes, you can say number one. Number one would be this inspiring greeting, this gospel-packed message in between how are you and I am fine kind of thing, a heavenly hello. There's a couple reasons why. Number one, he comes out like gangbusters because you can already tell he's combating the false teachers by what he's saying. He's defining what it is we do and why it is we do it. And that's certainly not what's going on in Crete. And so he comes out swinging. And number two, the reason for this fat salutation is is to encourage this guy. He's left behind. He's got to go in. Does anybody here like to confront people? (laughs) If you like to confront people, you should not be confronting people. (laughs) Nobody likes to confront people, but this kid is left to quote, and it's coming next week. This is what he's charged to do. You must silence those empty talkers. He needs to go in to town and get busy, man. And so he's right away, he's just going to start out encouraging him right away. And then he's going to pump him up. And after you chew on this for a while, it's a little heady. It's a theological greeting. And we're going to walk through it, you know, and we'll get to the next paragraph, but only to verse 9 because there's so much to talk about. But he's doing it to say, hey, this is about eternal life, man. You, you can't wimp out on me. You can't let it get to you. You've got to hold steady, man, because it's the gospel. It's the command of God. Eternal life is on the line. That's what he's doing here in a simple greeting. Usually he says, like, uh, this is Paul to the church at Thessalonica, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, period. But not in this case, because this young man, he needs it right from the start of the letter. And so let's take a look at this inspirational 
salutation as they're called. And so first, I just like, he says, it's me, Paul. They always sign the letter at the beginning because it's a scroll, right? So you don't want have to unwrap the whole thing to find out who's talking to me, right? So they start out, hey, just so you know, right up front, no more scrolling, unscrolling is needed. It's me, Paul. Two things he described himself as just so inspirational. Number one, the best thing I can say about myself, the highest honor, the greatest privilege of my life is I'm God's slave. I am my beloved's and he is mine. Uh, the responsibility for my work, my message, my life, my safety, my finances, everything is taken care of by my master. And to be the Lord's slave is to be the freest of all people, free from the fear of death, fear from peer pressure and the fear of man, fear from guilt, a freedom from guilt, I should say. And so he's, he's just God's slave. And, and what he's going to try to get at is that, listen, we just do what God wants us to do. This is his church and it's his message, and we are his servant. We're not making this stuff up, and that's why this is called a pastoral epistle, because it's written to a pastor about pastors and the protocols of how the church of God should function. Everything in a church that we do, I can show you chapter and verse why we do it. We don't just start by reading a psalm because we feel like it, because that's what we find in the scriptures. And then there's a fellowship time for a reason. We have home fellowship groups for a reason. We have the Lord's Supper to remember his death on our behalf for a reason. We sing hymns and we have public prayer for a reason. And then somebody stands up who is called by God and given gifts to do the work to preach and teach the message. And so uh, the things that we do in the service are, are, are by and large from these epistles that we see. God has a message and he says, I'm just a slave and I'm the one sent apostle here as we move through the words. Apostle is to be sent. And so he says, I'm just God's servant sent with his authority he knows what he wants to say, he has a message, and he knows through whom he wants to bring that message. He has qualifications for that person, and he's going to get into that. So let's just kind of dive in, and he says, I've been sent with this gospel, and it's, it's kind of wordy, but he says, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Let's unpack that. A shorter way of saying that is this is all about seeing people saved and not perishing and condemned to uh, eternal loss, but to eternal life, the faith of God's people. That's what it means, to have saving faith, to be saved. And it's a, it's a, it's a salvation that leads to and is evidenced by, as the text says, a knowledge of the truth we open our hearts, the Holy Spirit comes in, and it leads to godliness. What does that mean? True salvation, which wasn't happening on Crete, led to expressing itself by moral transformation. And if you don't have moral transformation, the way you think, the way you act, the way you talk, your values, your whole life spinning around, then you don't have the gospel. And they didn't have the gospel. So already there's a dig in here. He's saying, hey, we're sent with the real deal. The truth that sets hearts free and is evidenced by a changed life. If anyone is in Christ, they are new. The old is gone. The new has come. Jesus said you'll be born from above. And when that happens, then you become godly because guess who's in you? Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Don't you realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Now, that was not the gospel that was going on. And they did a lot of talking, but they were empty. They're, he calls them empty talkers. And when you're an empty talker, you have an empty life. And so the lips said one thing and the life said something else. And he said, that can't be. 
So right away, he's just saying, hey, listen, the faith of God's chosen people, they get the knowledge of the truth that sets their hearts free, that leads them to a changed life. And then he goes on, a faith and a knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. That's crazy. He says, you know what the bottom line of all this struggle, all this denying yourself, all this trying to obey God and be with God is the bottom line of the whole shebang, the big ticket item, It's eternal life. That's what's on the line. That's what the offer is. That's what the book is about. 66 books, 40 uh, different writers. One message. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you'll never die but you'll live forever. That's the message. So he's saying, listen, before I even start, how are you? I am fine kind of thing. I just want you to know, every bit of fear, every bit of intimidation, every bit of angst that you go through in a task that God calls you either personally or outwardly, eternal things are on the line. Death never made sense to me. I I didn't grow up a believer but it never made sense to me because God put eternity in all of our hearts. Do you know that only 7% of people are atheists in the whole world? Why? Because God has put eternity in people's hearts and so every culture and every age and every nation, every tribe, every language, they have their ideas of the afterlife. But they don't have the gospel. Some of them do. And so he's saying, listen, eternity is on the the line. And then he says, uh, listen, and this is the promise that whoever believes in Christ will live forever. And he says, there are twin facts about this that you can rest on. Number one, he says, God, and notice your text. He says, God who will not lie, no. Who does not lie, it's really in the Greek, it says he cannot lie. It is a physical impossibility. So God has promised before there was the beginning of time, before there was an earth, the intention of God's heart is to to know us, to love us, and to have us with him for eternity. We would never die, he wants, he knit this death and resurrection into our very lives. Winter, spring, dead, alive. Winter, spring, winter, spring, winter, spring, winter, spring. Dies, comes to life. Dead, comes to life. Every day, sun goes down, it gets dark, we go to sleep. We lay down, we look like we're dead for like eight to 10 hours, right? And then we wake up. Morning, evening, evening, morning, morning, evening, death, resurrection, death, resurrection, lay down dead, wake up in the morning, winter, spring. That's what he's doing. And he says, listen, Titus, that's our work. That's why we do what we do. We want people to live forever, and so does God. What does God say? He says, go out and into the highways and byways that my house may be Fully wants a full table. And that's what he's saying here. God's promised it. He wants it. And then he says, the other fact is, is, is that you know we have eternal life because at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me. Stop right there. He's saying, you already know God's good with the promise for eternal life because you've already begun yours. Through the preaching of the gospel, he raised you from the dead of your your sins and trespasses and raised you to new life already. Your eternal life that he's promised long ago has already started. In Saul, who was a murderer, now he's a missionary. Why? Because of death and resurrection and the promise of eternal life. And so when you get saved and open your heart, the Holy Spirit comes in and regenerates you, and that's the life that can never die, and it's already started. It's the already, but not yet, but almost. 
but it's already started, and that's what its point is. It's through the preaching and the results of preaching in people's lives you can see. And he said, that's been entrusted to us as a command of God our Savior. Now notice the shout out to the deity of Christ, because a lot of people say, you know, where does it say in the Bible that Jesus is God? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's one of them right here. Just follow his logic. He says, uh, it's the gospel is entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Our Savior is God. God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Savior is God. Savior is Jesus. Jesus is God. There it is, right there. All right. <laughs> Listen, Houston, we have a good problem. All right, because you have a verse or two there that says there's a God the Father and there's a God the Son. And another verse, God the Holy Spirit, the three in one right there. We're in Cottingtown Mall, shopping with Barb. I was doing my duty. <laughs> I don't mind it, you know, sometimes. But I'd much rather talk to the two Jehovah's Witnesses right there. And so she's pulling me away. I'm gravitating over to the table. You know, there's two little old ladies sitting there, you know, being witnesses, you know, and I want to witness to them. And so, uh, you know, I start talking, and one of them says, um, where in the Bible? You just show me one place where it says Jesus is God. And I said, okay, John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. John chapter 10, verse 30. John chapter 14, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. <laughs> Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. And Titus chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, right here before you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. All right? <laughs> Come on. Behind those big brown Jewish eyes is somebody fully human because he was born of one of us, but fully God because he was conceived of God, the Holy Spirit. And he came to us as the God-man. And that is the gospel. And that is why when he opens your heart and he says, if you trust in me, I paid for all of your sins. You got a free pass. I'll come in and turn on the generator so that when the little electrical pulse that nobody can explain that goes on beep, Beep. When that goes out, your generator of the Holy Spirit kicks on and you live on through that experience like waking up from a little nap. Amen? Amen. I think you get the message now. All right? So, so, so here's what. This is funny. Come on. Check this out. Hilarious. I've lost my place here. That's okay. This is what he's saying. It's me, Paul. We're his servants. We belong to God. He sent us with this message, the truth that sets us free. Follow along. We preach at God's command. The people come to faith. They are filled and transformed. They're raised from the dead and inherit eternal life based on the unchanging purposes and promises of God himself. Dear Titus, how are you? I am fine. That's exactly what's going on. Now he says, dear Titus, may God, grace, may God treat you better than you deserve as he always does. That's what grace means. And then peace. May he just bless you with an uh, overall sense of wellness. That's what that word means. And he, that's his standard blessing. And it's always grace and peace. Always grace and peace. Never the other way around because you will never have peace until you experience personally the grace and favor of God and it's found in only one place, what he just said through God the Father and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, now the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Here's what we're looking for, and here's what the other guys are not. So let's just go over this, okay? An elder slash pastor slash overseer, all used interchangeably, same words. 
a pastor, as the American uh, West likes to call that word. A pastor must be blameless. The husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he's got to be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Verse 8, rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute, rebuke, stand against, expose those who oppose the trustworthy sound message. That's the job. This is how he behaves. This is what he teaches. And what is good for the goose is good for the gander. And I can make a case, except for the teaching part, that every single quality of an elder, it may be mandated, and it's a must for somebody on a platform, but it is a beneficial blessing and a command for every mature Christian. And so don't count yourself out and say, well, how interesting, it's nice to see what God wants pastors to be like. Well, that word elder just means to be mature or wise. And Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so these vices to avoid and virtues to embrace, this, these character qualities are for all of us. Uh, but they are mandatory for somebody who says, I think I want to be a pastor. I want to be an elder of a church. Well, then out comes the clipboard and uh, these qualifications. Now, you'll, you, most of you know that the, almost the same exact list exists in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Timothy was doing the same kind of work in Ephesus. Why is there a, a duplicate here? It's some small changes, but pretty much the same material. Why? Because God's saying, what's required of a man who preaches the gospel from a pulpit is the same, whether it's on some island in the middle of the Mediterranean or mainland Ephesus in the country of Turkey. If you're in Omaha, Nebraska, or Weezer, Idaho, or London, England, it's always the same. Character and theology. You know what blows my mind? Where's teaching? Where's seminary? Well, it's a given, first of all. It's a given. And by the way, we've passed from the inspiring uh, salutation or greeting to now the daunting task. And we finish with this daunting task. Well, you know, where is, the, uh, where is this thing about teaching? Well, um, it is listed in the, in the 1 Timothy chapter 3 section. It's a no-brainer. If somebody's going to be a pastor, has to have the gift of teaching, right? That's not the problem on Crete. We've got the talkers. The best talker, the most persuasive speaker I've ever met was in Puerto Vallarta at a timeshare event, all right? <laughs> So they had plenty outspoke me. I didn't. I got out unscathed. Praise the Lord. <laughs> like we got it. We worked really hard for that free dinner. <laughs> <laughs> that man could talk. So it's not about, oh, wow, he can talk and he's smart and he's eloquent and articulate. He has the gift of gab, but he doesn't have the gift of God. So he's going to say, unlike those empty talkers and deceivers and guys filled with themselves who are teaching you erroneous material, he says, these guys who preach the word of God, their lives are going to match their lips and their profession of faith is going to line up with their walk and their talk. It's going to be the same thing. The number one thing he says, God is saying, do not misrepresent me. In fact, the do not use his name in vain doesn't essentially mean what you think it means. 
to don't use his name like we hear all the time. It includes that. But actually, the bigger meaning of that commandment is to misrepresent him by speaking that you know him and acting like you don't. That's what this passage is about. If you're going to preach the gospel, there are some benchmarks. He is not saying, you, you, one guy, what did he say? Press these requirements too hard. Make them wooden and unbreathable law. And you'll find yourself excluding all men from the ministry. <laughs> because nobody will qualify. But to not embrace them seriously enough... Or to lower these standards, you'll be flirting with spiritual disaster for any congregation. And so he says, listen, unlike those clowns who think they could just because they have a silver tongue and they're, quote, presenting you fine-sounding arguments, just like today, he says, watch their lives. Because if they don't practice what they preach, stamp them null and void. So number one, uh, let me show you the words pastor, overseer, elder. It gets confusing. Bishop, what does that all mean? I've got it for you right here. Elder, shepherd, pastor, overseer, bishop, sometimes here. They're used synonymously for what we would call pastor. All right? That's the word we settle on. Sometimes when you hear elder, you think the board of elders. Okay. But sometimes they're pastors too. All right, so here's a verse that uses them all interchangeably to the elders. First Peter chapter five, verses one and two, to the elders. Now, uh, this is presbyteros is where you get Presbyterian from. So back in the day, and it means elder or wise, mature. So back in the day, if you were a Presbyterian, you were saying we are wise in the faith. All right, and so he, he appeals as a fellow elder using the same word, a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds, pastors in that word uh, also appears in uh, Ephesians chapter four and verse 11 where God gifts the church pastors. That's the same word here in the Greek, all right? And the word means to feed because that's the number one job of a pastor to take the word of God, to study it, to apply it, to break it open, to bake some bread out of it and take a salutation that was way over everybody's head, including mine, and break it down and come in with something that will nourish you. That is the job of the pastor. And he goes on to say, serving as an overseer, and some versions say bishops, right? Uh, from a word that's related to this word in the Greek, which means to look over, to watch over. And so the overseer manages the church and people with watchful care. And so why, why all the synonyms? Because it gives you a nice flavor, a round flavor of what church leadership is all about. It's about all of these things, to be a mature, wise person who can counsel and lead, to feed the word of God, to protect and to lead and to manage and to be our brothers and sisters' keepers. And so that explains that. Now he says, now, with the calling of God, and somebody says, hey, I'm called, I wanna be in the pastorate, as we say. Number one is to be blameless. So we go back to our verse the word blameless there in your text, he says an elder must be blameless, verse six. It means to be above reproach. And the best example of that, it really means a sound reputation in every area of your life. There, there's, there's, there can be no charge that would stick against you. And so you're asking yourself on each of these qualities, is this true of you and of me, all right? This is what you're thinking about yourself as well. And so blameless, let me give you a great example of uh, this idea of being above reproach. Remember in Daniel chapter six, Daniel got a promotion and it made everybody envious and angry underneath him that all the Babylonians had to be ruled by boss man who's a Jew. No fun. So they said, let's get this guy in trouble. 
And so they spied on him and searched and dug around and asked his neighbors. And if it were a modern day uh, event, they would have audited his taxes, ran ran a credit report, searched on his computer, checked out his texts, got all his passwords, followed him on business trips, secretly tapped his phone and hired a private investigator. And having done all of that, they came up with nothing. It doesn't mean he was perfect or sinless because God's word says there's no such thing. But in every area of life, goodness just prevailed. And you couldn't find a thing that stuck with them, right? And so how about you? If we went through your computer and your phones and, 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 and listened to the tape of you in the car talking or driving in traffic, oh, dear Lord. <laughs> That's it. But if you want to be up here, that's why James says, not, do not let many of you say, oh, I want to be a pastor. Because God's going to hold the pastor to a higher standard. So they don't have the luxury of blowing off a little steam. Wouldn't that be nice once in a while? No can do. No can do because I'm up here with an open book saying that, you know, God sent me to tell you something. Yikes. Moving on to number two. In the Greek, it says he's a one-woman man. That doesn't mean he he could, uh, has never been widowed or married before. There's lots of things that go on. Was he even saved when he was married? That's a whole can of words. What he's saying here is he's a good man. Husband, he's he, there, no polygamy, which was common, no mistresses, which sadly was also common, no wider. If we widen this up, no flirtations. Not one of those guys. You could kind of read that kind of vibe on somebody. None of that. None of that. No pornography at all. That's what it's talking about. Pornography is. Zero tolerance for the ministry, zero. No such thing as a struggle. I'm struggling with it. No. No, you're not struggling with it. You're doing it. And you do it because you want to do it. Oh, we want to stop. Newsflash. If you wanted to stop, guess what? You would have stopped. Sorry. I'm just uh, looking at your faces. You can have your struggle out there. I'm not suggesting you do it. But if you're going to be behind a book and a pulpit, God help your soul if you're doing that. God help your soul. So that's what he's saying. Listen, I was at the dentist, speaking of. <laughs> I was at the dentist and, uh, 100 years ago. And I said to him, where do you go to church now? And he said, oh, we had to change churches. I said, what's up? And he said, My wife was uncomfortable the way the pastor would hug her. And he's no longer in ministry because he had a moral failure. Years after that comment was made to me. The the first thing they teach you at seminary is, gentlemen, a side hug for the ladies, a side hug for the ladies and self-control and think of women as your sister. We better move a little bit faster. <laughs> the heart of number three is in the house. So he says, well, he's, he's a good husband. He's faithful to his wife and he's a good father. That's the, the positive spin of number three. He says, If we ask it positively, is there order and peace and faith in the home? Or is there disorder, chaos, rebellion, and the kids are wild and crazy and all of that? Let's talk about what it's not talking about. We had three kids. We still do. (laughs) (laughs) They're, they're, They're just a little older now, and they're producing children. But when they were five, seven, and nine, getting to church in one piece 
and with sanity was a little bit of a chore at times. He's not talking about tossels in the car. You know, we'd arrive at church and things have been flying around in the car and uh, voices are a little bit raised, a little bit, and nerves are frayed and all of that. And you open the car door and right in front of church and someone says, praise the Lord. And you're like, praise the Lord too. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, no, he's not talking about a messy house and things are out of order and doors slam sometimes. You're not talking about normal life, right? Where you get up in the middle of the night, you step on a dinosaur and your world comes apart, <laughs> right? You know, he's not talking about normal craziness, three children, messes, skirmishes, teenage years when adolescents have to find their own identities and their own Jesus and, and is where they'll push the envelopes and cause all kinds of problems. But it's not a problem if it's in spite of good parenting. The ministry parents are not to be um, castigated or punished because in spite of it. Now, if it's the consequence of neglectful parenting, where the father is angry and doesn't read the scriptures and there's no church and there's no discipline and none of that, he, then he's saying, you want to manage the, the church of God? Get busy managing your own house uh, that way. And so there's one quote here that's really nice. It says, good parenting is obvious. Where there was faith, grace, love leading the way in the hall where both affection and biblical discipline abounded, where there was prayer, the word of God, church biblical role models to follow. The scriptures in no wise penalize ministry parents for the poor choices of maturing teens who exercise their free will and in spite of solid parenting, reject the truth. In those cases, the church wouldn't point a finger, but rather rally around the family in Need. That said, I love this quote here. Parents take too much credit for the children who shine and accept too much blame for the strugglers. That's a good one. But he's got to be a good father. You know, he's got to be a good father. And maybe he is a good father and things are really crazy in the home. Then maybe you should take a sabbatical. And not, so I'm not excusing that. I'm saying maybe he should be able to take some time off and do something that avails him uh, more time to be a good dad. Uh, the number, number four, verse seven, he repeats himself because the work of God calls for uh, being blameless. So he's saying, okay, you gotta be blameless. I know I'm repeating this at home, on vacation, in traffic, at the gym, blameless, okay? Now winding down, uh, come 11 adjectives. It's not an exhaustive list, but by the time you're done with the list, we get it. Five vices to avoid, six virtues to embrace, and then he closes verse nine with the ministerial duty, and then we're done. All right, so let's take a look at first the five vices. And then below them <clears throat> are the six virtues. Vices to avoid. The guy cannot be any leader in the church, cannot be overbearing. The word means self-willed, full of themselves, like the Cretans were, uh, his way or the highway. Yes, all leaders are strong personalities. You have to have a strong personality to lead, but you're reasonable. You have guys around you. You listen to them. Uh, number two, uh, quick-tempered, easily irritated. Here's an ancient Chinese proverb, wink, wink. Short-fused pastor makes many explosions in pews. <laughs> they like that first service. <laughs> I probably delivered it better. So listen, people in other churches can be demanding and difficult. All right, you'll notice what, how I described where they are. There are other churches. Uh, so for a, a pastor who's easily irritated, not going to work. Thick skin, cutting slack, merciful, not quick-fused. 
Number three there on your list is not, it's a no-brainer. He's not a drunk. He doesn't mess around with that. I abstain. I don't have to. Beer and wine is okay for Christians in moderation, unless the Holy Spirit says no for you, for whatever reason. You may not even have a drinking problem, but the Holy Spirit, every single time it goes to your lips, he goes, you know, if, they, if that's you, then you need to heed that because God is not trying to be a killjoy. He's trying to bless your life. And so uh, the, the, the deal there is not a prohibition against wine or beer. It's a prohibition against drunkenness. And by the way, the violent word that comes after that is, is partnered with the alcohol because it's a violence that is fueled by uh, alcohol, too much alcohol, and that's what he's talking about there. Um, And then not pursuing dishonest gain. That's just the televangelist thing. You should be motivated by service, not money. Most pastors I know, they have a calling, and it feels as though we would pay people to be able to preach. And most pastors have a side job because it's about a calling. Paul said, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. That's how I feel. I feel like I would die if I couldn't preach the gospel. And so we do so not because we want to make a living, even though it says in 1 Corinthians, those who preach the gospel must make their living by the gospel. And so it's biblical, but you're motivated not for the money. I worked a full-time job five, six years into this church plant. That's not the half of the church plant. I was working a full-time job and preaching two sermons a week and commuting to Concord and back. Why? I have a calling. I have a calling. That's what guys do. Yeah, uh, the televangelist list ought to just read this list here, you know? It's not about mansions and jets and uh, selling holy water to make a buck, man. That's not going to be good when the Lord appears. Okay, continuing now, six virtues, okay? These are nice. They're largely um, self-explanatory, right? Number one, he's got to be hospitable, Uh, Newsflash, pastors should be friendly. (laughs) Uh, Warm, open-hearted, open home, likes to cook fettuccine. Whoops. (laughs) You know, I don't get a cold pastor. Uh, You meet them. I don't don't get it. You know, one guy told me once, a very good teacher, he said, I'm just not a people person. (laughs) What? (laughs) You shouldn't be in the ministry. Well, I've got this gift. Who cares about the gift? Who cares? I don't care about the gift. If I feel like this happens at conferences, I get wowed. I'm like, oh, wow. I love you, you know? (laughs) Because God's using him and he doesn't even know, but you've just unlocked something and I've been struggling with it. And oh, thank you. And they go up to talk to him. Where is he? At the conference. Oh, he's back in the green room. What's that? Well, you know, they just kind of go back in the green room. What, is this Hollywood? What's this? He just preached the gospel. He's hiding out now like he just preached at us. Oh, I'm so impressed. I, I just, I lost everything. It's like, I, I don't want to go to the conference if he's there anymore, you know? Come out and spend a few minutes. You can't reach everybody. I'm sure of her feelings and lots of people hurt feelings that the, the church grows to hundreds and hundreds of people and you're walking by and trying to get everybody. But you, you got to like people. That's all I'm trying to say. Done. Loves what is good. He's happy when good wins out, when love triumphs when hearts and relationships are mended, when truth is made known, when mercy is extended, he likes good deeds, you get it. Self-control, oh, sensible judgment and disciplined lifestyle. Now, if you get one wish, you know, you're walking in, you rub the bottle and out comes a genie and it says, you know, you get one wish, wish for this. 
self-control. You know why? Because a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls, Proverbs 25, 28. If you don't have self-control, you're doomed. That's what the Proverbs says. You're a disaster waiting to happen. You've got no protection. It's going to be a hormone. It's going to be a, a word. It's going to be a traffic stop. It's going to be something because you don't have self-control. It's going to be a challenge, a difficulty, something you didn't see coming. You got your feelings hurt. You think God didn't answer your prayer. No self-control. You're done. So he says, Pastor, a lot of stuff's going to happen. You need to be in charge of yourself. Upright. It just means straight shooter, mostly with people, honest dealing, not cynical, not kind of secretive, just direct, straight. You know, what you see is what you get. That's what it means. Holy, devout in his relationship with God. Disciplined. Now, that's a nice end cap word. It means self-mastery, so it takes self-control up a notch. And it's a nice way to kind of sum up the list. And here's what he's saying. He's bomb-proof, okay? Bomb-proof means that it's a horse thing where they train the horse uh, to be bomb-proof, meaning gunfire, explosions, uh, uh, Harley Davidson goes by. But the, the horse is trained, I see nothing, I hear nothing, I'm just listening to my master on the reins. That's it. Right? He's bomb-proof. All right? Somebody who has this self-mastery by the Holy Spirit, of course, it's not his hormones. It's not his emotions. It's not his wife. It's not anybody. It's the prompting of the Holy Spirit. He's in control. He's at the helm. And he's not going anywhere because behind the helm and that big steering wheel... <laughs> Is the Lord Jesus Christ behind that person saying, steady as she goes, son or daughter. None of this. None of that. Especially if you're, some, you're leading somebody and you're all leading somebody. You're all leading somebody. You impact somebody. None of this panicking. Show people what it's like to have faith through the storm. They're watching you. So let's wrap up as Paul wraps up in this verse nine. It's really nice, all isolated. It's the, now he's leaving character uh, for teaching and theology, conduct for his preaching. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message, the gospel, as it's been taught, not some newfangled thing, as it's been passed down through the ages and entrusted once for all to the saints so that he can encourage others by sound, healthy, solid, accurate doctrine, teaching, tenets of the faith, principles, teaching, and refute, rebuke, correct, exhort, expose those who oppose sound doctrine. So this ending, you know, the pastor is charged and I will answer to God, did you do that? Did you hold firmly? Now, what about holding firmly is important. What's important is that you're holding firmly because somebody's trying to grab that out of your hands. And in every age, in every nation, in every place, there's always been somebody or something trying to wrestle the gospel out of your hands. Why? Because look at this verse and we'll come back. This last verse here. Watch your life and your doctrine closely to Timothy. Preserve in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Your life, how you live, and your teaching. Because this is what saves you. So if the truth is the thing that saves you and sets your hearts free, and it's the message, by the message of the word of God that we come to faith, that if you distort that, you will either shipwreck the Christian and make him ineffective and unproductive and can't be the person God wants them to be, but they're still saved, 
but miserably kind of ineffective because they're following some lie, or it prevents the person from getting saved in the first place because you can only be saved by the truth. So of course the spiritual powers in dark places are trying to tweak the message ever so slightly sometimes to impact you. So you can go back to that verse. So he says, you've got to hold on no matter what the Pope says. Okay, he must hold firmly. Why? Because the Pope just said that there's no such thing as hell. That if you die in your sins, you simply disappear. Show me that in the Bible. Show me that. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses teach. It's called a nihilism. I'll show you verses that Jesus says the soul lives forever. Either way, either forever in death and condemnation, in total awareness. But the Pope has declared, you disappear. Oh, no, 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 no. God says, and then I'll get an email. Why do you have to refute those who oppose sound doctrine? Okay, I'll tell you. Because he says, please refute those who oppose sound doctrine. <laughs> that's, that's what it says. And I'll tell you what, while I got you here, sorry, I'm going long, as usual. Nothing makes postmodern Christians more upset than for when a pastor says, by the way, there's this new book out. I don't know what they're thinking. Some kid said he went to heaven and he saw everybody and he wrote down their names and he came back and they made a book and a movie about it. And then the Bible says, nobody is permitted to come back from heaven and tell you anything. Just read your Bible. And then he has to come out and say, oh, by the way, I made it all up for money, which he did. And the Christian publisher pulled the books because they said, sorry, the kids said he made it all up. Well, I could have told you that. And I did tell you that. And I got emails that said, why are you going to refute those who oppose it? And I said, because it says, refute those who oppose it. <laughs> But nothing makes people more squeamish. Can we all just get along? Yes. If we agree that Jesus is Lord. Now God says, kindness, engage with respect, right? Yes, I use a little sarcasm. <laughs> and I can work on the way I, I mean, he doesn't say come out with your guns blazing all the time. Who wants to listen to that all day, right? But when there's a headline that talks to one billion people he's responsible for, oh, don't worry. You'll just disappear if you don't make it. Let me close with this. Remember the pharmacist who was trying to make a little extra money? So he watered down the chemotherapy. Yeah, Google it up. You'll read the article. I wrote it down. 2014 pharmacist, 24%. You were getting 24% instead of 100%. And it was making $1,000 per thing that he was doing. And so there are pastors who are, are giving the meds and saying, hey, your cancer, your sin, eternal life, you, you're good. It's watered down to the point you're going to die of the cancer. There's another thing. I, I told you about this. Uh, there was 2005, a body armor manufacturer was using inferior materials to make bulletproof vests, and they knew about it. And the vest failed, and people died. And so there are churches, so-called churches, spiritual centers and all kinds of places that, that pass out the vest and people leave this morning in this county feeling like I got my bulletproof vest on and if I have a heart attack, I'm good because that person up there with the silver tongue and the fine sounding argument told me I'm okay if I A, B, and C, but it's not the gospel. The bullet of death is gonna come through that thing and they're gonna die in their sins. And God have mercy on the soul that fitted them with a valuable vest or watered down the meds. 
just so they could either be more popular, more palatable, more postmodern y, more comfortable. God help us all to hold firmly. You guys, hold firmly. This is the end of the times where the Bible says it's going to be really tough to hold firm because people are going to want to get their ears itched where, where, scratched where they itch. Hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught and encourage others by sound doctrine. And if you get an open door with kindness, with grace, speaking the truth in love, refute those who oppose it. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love. Thank you for this passage, just so full of things to talk about. We pray that you apply these wonderful principles to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.